Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show... 458. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have one story today in today's show, and it is a Belton story. Oh, man. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Before that, though, I got a note off Jeremy, and I'll read Jeremy's note out. It is, I put it out on the email as well, so if you subscribe to the email, you will already get it. But I'll read what Jeremy has. Jeremy has got a statement. Right, you've got to imagine that I'm reading this in Jeremy's Australian twang. Hi there, everyone. Jeremy Sal, fiction editor for Starship Sova here. Just a quick note to let you know that Starship Sova will be open from submissions from the 1st of November to the 30th of November. We're after all manner of science fiction reprint submissions from all corners of the globe. If you have a piece that's been published... We want to see it. Please spread this word around. The more submissions we get, the more diverse and higher quality your stories will be. For more details, and there's a link on there, if anyone is interested, pop over to our website where the guidelines are, and then you can see that there. And like I say, if you just look, and I'll put a link on the show notes as well so you can pop into the the guidelines and have a look. He also says, we're looking forward to reading your stories. Also, earlier this year, we also ran a Translations Month special where we played stories translated in English from other languages. I'm happy to report that we'll be running a sequel, Translations Month Special 2. We're still building up a lineup, and we're hoping to get stories from all around the globe and showcase the international diversity and weirdness of the genre. Recommendations are more than welcome. That's it for now. As always, keep listening and keep supporting us however you can. Even a comment about how much you like a story helps. Until next time, Jeremy Sal. 
Jeremy, thank you so much. So there you go. We are open now as this show goes out for submissions. If you've had a story that's been reprinted anywhere or been published anywhere, let us send it in, man. Send it over to Jeremy. Get him working. <laughs> and I like to say what I'm looking forward to, mind you, is the Translation Month special. That blew me away. The amount of people we had kind of coming over and listening to those shows, the, the, the quality of the stories, man, it was just fantastic. So... We're doing that as well. Translation Month Special 2. I bit my tongue there when I said translations. That's why we're... Translations Month Special 2. So, on to the main fiction. And like I say, it is by T.R. Napa. It's called An Advanced Guide to Successful Price Fixing in the Extraterrestrial Betting Markets. By T.R. Napa. Originally appeared in Interzone 256. Little special place there in my heart for Interzone. T.R. Napa's short fiction has appeared in Asimov's Interzone, several issues, Grimdark Magazine and several others. He is a Writers of the Future winner and has been nominated for the Dittmar Award. T.R. Napa has spent the last decade living and working throughout Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. His website is here and Napa Time. You've got to have it on your dot com. I'll put a link on there as well so you can pop over there. This story, man, this story is narrated by, it's nice to have him on, Graham Dunlop. Graham is a solutions architect. But what's that, man, Graham? Whatever the dickens that title is. And a voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He also wears rather too many hats over his escape artist's family of publications. He, this main Hat over there is the co-editor of Podcastle, the weekly fantasy fiction podcast. Where you go, Graham? You know, what's this? Solutions architect. I love all that nonsense, man. <laughs> Fan- Graham, honestly, and a bloody amazing narration. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. An Advanced Guide to Successful Price Fixing in Extraterrestrial Betting Markets by T.R. Napper. The key to walking up and down the stairs was both to randomise and to play by the rules. The rules said that you could not step on every stair, and wherever possible, not step on stairs with obvious stains. Knots for wooden stairs, chewing gum for concrete, that sort of thing. So the rules as such were not too onerous. Randomising was basically to ensure that the aliens placing bets on which stairs I would step on would have a viable betting market. Some days I'd be creative, miss three steps, walk on one, miss another three. Those times I just knew there was some lucky alien punter up there grinning while they cashed in their long shot ticket. Most of the time though I'd be rushing or indifferent or just exhausted and zombie shuffling down them, bothering only to skip the last step. Those days I'd simply be guaranteeing minimal steady returns for your conservative alien gambler. That's what I did this morning, missing only the last step as I slouched off the middle set of stairs into the kitchen. Vega smiled distractedly as I entered. She said, Long night? Haven't been to bed. She looked up from her toast properly then and did that disappointed tilt of her head thing she did. I got it often. Altair... Vega. Her bread knife, coated in Vegemite, hovered above the toast like the bread knife of Damocles. 
I wondered how the toast felt about this dramatic tension. She said, well. I sat down with a groan on the other side of the kitchen bench. I'd been on my butt all night, but I sat down with an authentic groan anyway. I asked with deliberate obtuseness, well, what? She gave me another head tilt. Was it worth it? I grunted. Coffee. Results, Altair. I grunted again. I was down three million. Shit. Then I tried a series of bets on the Hong Kong trots I'd been planning for a few months. And? I went down eight. Altair, she said, and she lowered her hands to rest on the edge of the bench. The governor granted a reprieve to the toast and instead made me the focus of her judgment. Then um, I went a little mad and bet big on boxed trifectas at the aqueduct in New York. I don't know what that means, but it sounds stupid. It was profoundly stupid. Isn't that computer of yours meant to be making these bets? It is, but I was busy being profoundly stupid. She looked me over with a laser-like stare that somehow combined X-ray vision, too. If eyes could burn like a laser and see right through you at the same time, that'd be Vega's superpower. Then the laser cannons dropped to their original target and the toast met its fate. Vegemite was duly smeared. She took a bite between rows of perfectly even, small white teeth. Her face was very pretty, sure, but that was merely a cunning mask to lure arrogant energy executives into the titanium-trapped cerebrum possessed by the smartest environmental defender this side of the equator. Titanium mind, laser eyes, it looks like I'm married to a superhero. She'd look pretty fine in a skin-tight spandex costume as well. Vega raised an eyebrow. Well, you're sitting there smelling of stale sweat. That pungent, nervous sweat you ooze when your horses aren't winning, that once upon a time you used to sweat when we first started dating. But you've also got that smug look in your eye, and you're asking me for coffee, so I guess all those stupid bets paid off and you dug yourself out of a hole. She took another bite, then said, Either that or you're imagining me as a supervillain again. I laughed. Come on, let me at least give you the slow reveal. I'm running too late, she said, slurping down the rest of her coffee, for war stories from the battle lines of the race courses. She entered the miasma of my odour, unconcerned, and kissed me on the lips. I kissed her back, wondering how I ended up with the smartest woman in the spire. I also wondered how my breath smelled after twelve hours of coffee, peanuts, and feverish incantations to the capricious gods of gambling. Vega paused on the stairs on the way out and looked back at me. Fortunately, she had no consciousness of alien betting markets and therefore did not need to abide by the rules of stair-walking. She pointed her half-eaten toast at me. You haven't left this apartment in weeks. You're taking me out to dinner tonight, buddy. So you're going to need to sleep, shower and gargle whatever needs to be gargled to remove that stench of the underworld drifting out of your mouth. You prefer spearmint or peppermint? I asked, smiling. I'm not sure that's going to be potent enough. Hundred proof rum? Paint thinner might do the trick. We smiled at each other and then she turned and mounted the stairs. 
I heard the door slam upstairs as I moved across the black and white tiles of the kitchen, moving as the night moves in chess, stepping only two squares ahead and one to the side. The tiles were large, so there was little risk of stepping on the cracks between. There was no established betting market for my tile walking. I did it more as a ward against generalised ill fortune, a conservative yet logical approach. I said, kitchen, give me a double espresso. A flat, uninflected voice replied, yes, sir. Ten seconds later, a small steaming cup of coffee popped out of the sleek black tabletop. I picked it up and walked from the kitchen over to the floor-to-ceiling lounge room windows, ensuring, of course, that the overall number of steps to the windows could be divided by three. I worked it so it took 21 paces. I sipped my coffee and looked out of the wasteland. The blasted Mars scape of the Australian desert, a thousand kilometres of broken red rocks and earth, suffering under the merciless burn of the sun's long lament. Soon, though, this apocalyptic vista would be terraformed by another form of sand, this one living, silica nanotech. My preternaturally talented wife was playing a lead role in that miracle, the transformation of sand into energy, from the red baking earth into a frozen silver ocean. It would be the largest solar array in the world and the key to Australian energy independence. So as I stood there, 200 stories up in the spire. A glittering needle pointed at the heavens, every inch coated in nano-silver particles, transforming the surface into a towering solar panel sufficient unto itself to power the city-sized population that lived within its sparkling walls. I stood there on that monument to the ingenuity of humankind and contemplated the third race at Mooney Valley. There was a horse called Gleeser I had my eye on, racing three days hence. I figured I'd better get upstairs and run it through the system and see what it thought. Someone cleared their throat. I started and turned, the small cup slipping from my hand and cracking on the hard faux wood floor. A heavy-set guy I'd never seen before was sitting on the couch, smoking, feet up on the coffee table, wearing a rumpled grey suit, his grey fedora alongside his feet. He looked like he hadn't shaved in a day, and the air smelled of burned copper. His face was puffy and white, and his eyes were just that little bit too close together, dark and glittering, like two black pebbles sitting in a big ball of uncooked pizza dough. He nodded, like breaking into someone's house, sitting on their couch and smoking a cigarette was the most normal thing in the world, and said, Spaceman, how you doing? I froze. Well, I was already frozen, but even more so, I, I was Carbonite. Spaceman was a stupid nickname I'd earned in high school. I know what burnt copper smells like, as an aside, from the time the rocket ship I made for science class melted on the launch pad. The fuel mix I'd concocted consumed the rocket in an inferno of white and green fire and explosive curses from the science teacher. As it turns out, maths and not chemistry was my forte. So I got the name Spaceman, though... It had been twenty years since I'd been called it. This biographical detail, however, was somewhat trivial right now compared to the matter at hand. The random stranger in my lounge room. I unfroze and stepped backwards, sidling my way back to the kitchen whilst the intruder watched me amused. I didn't count the steps back, so they may not have been divisible by three. 
Even worse, the number of steps could have ended on a prime number. I was that distracted. I pulled out the largest carving knife we had from the rack and said, way calmer than expected, house, call security, tell them there's an intruder inside. I waited. No reply. The intruder smiled, content to slowly blow out a thick cloud of smoke and watch it rise languorously to the ceiling. House, I repeated. Nothing. House? I've turned off your security system, spaceman, said the man. You're wasting your time. What? How? With my mind, of course. The point of the knife, which I had lowered slowly in my confusion, now rose again to pinpoint the intruder. Sure, I said, and then looked up at the ceiling. House? The intruder rolled his little black eyes. I took a deep breath. Buddy, you need to leave. Oh, I, I will. I will. No problem. As soon as I get what I'm owed. I furrowed my brow. I made a lot of bets, or the system I built did anyway. Thousands even, every day. But as a point of pride, I never took a loan and never welched on a bet. Not since meeting Vega anyway. I said, I've no idea what you're talking about. He sighed, exhaling smoke through his nostrils as he did so. I hate this part. What part? The convincing part. All you big-time gamblers making huge bets with aliens on how many cracks you can avoid stepping on, or how many prime numbers you'll see in a 24-hour cycle, or on which steps you'll step on, or whatever. All these big bets. Yet when we come down to collect, you act all surprised, all innocent as to your obligations. He'd lost me. Huh? He took his feet off the coffee table and leaned forward, speaking slowly. Are you saying you don't randomise your steps while walking up and down the stairs in order to set markets for extraterrestrial betting pools? I do, I said, but... But? But that's all inside my head. He shook his head, flicking his cigarette butt onto the floor. Nothing is ever just inside your head. You people just can't seem to get that. We look at each other in silence. The intruder lit another cigarette. I wondered whether I was dreaming, or worse, whether it was starting again. The intruder cleared his throat and said, Firstly, stop calling me the intruder. You can call me Bruce. The knife was well and truly dangling in one hand now, forgotten. I whispered, You can read my mind? Spaceman, you've been psychically setting markets for my book for the last 12 months. Obviously I can read your mind. There wasn't really much I could say to that. He was right after all. So I suspended disbelief, if just for the moment. Bruce, I said. You're an alien called Bruce. I just picked a common name for Australians. Aren't you all called Bruce? I shook my head. I've never heard anyone called that. I moved over to the kitchen bench and sat down with my back to it, eyes on the intruder, the alien, Bruce. You don't talk like an alien. Bruce shrugged. Of course not. If I spoke my true language, your testicles would rupture and your brain ooze slowly out of your nose. I grabbed my testicles. Really? He laughed. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you just wouldn't be able to hear it. What's the second thing? Hmm? You said, firstly, stop calling me intruder. What's the next thing? All right, 
Uh, right, he said, nodding to himself. The second thing is you're not going crazy. That's the problem with human beings. You have phenomenological minds. You can't experience the universe beyond anything other than the narrow space between your ears, which always makes this to and fro I have with you people tedious in the extreme. It also usually leaves us where we started with you convinced that I'm an hallucination and me with no verifiable means of proving otherwise. Huh. So your mind isn't in a physical body, like a telepathic space spirit or something? Or something, he said dryly. I'm just an extension, you might say, of a far larger being. Like an arm? I'm not quite that important. A toenail, I asked, smiling. He looked me over, unsmiling. I guess you'd call me the fist. He took a drag on the cigarette. This is where things get unpleasant. Before I knew what was happening, the knife was moving and my right hand was moving it. I watched wide-eyed as I put my left arm out, exposing the inside of my arm. Slowly, steadily, and without the slightest pause, I put the blade of the carving knife against the soft white skin on the inside of my forearm. I gritted my teeth. A drop of sweat rolled down my brow, but I couldn't do anything but watch as the knife sliced the inside of my arm along deep cut. I tried to scream, but my jaw seemed frozen in place. Blood whirled in the wound and trickled down, dripping onto the floor. The ethereal iron grip on my body disappeared and I fell from the stool, landing on the hard forward with a grunt, the knife skittering across the floor. Blood drained between my fingers as I tried to put pressure on the wound, and then Bruce was right there, white bandage in hand, binding the gash in my arm. He steered me over to the sofa and sat me down, making reassuring noises. Then he seated himself opposite, put his feet up on the coffee table, and lit another cigarette. I sat staring at him open-mouthed. I'd never been stabbed before, and certainly not mind-controlled by an alien collecting imaginary bets stabbed. You can understand my consternation. After a time, it became clear he was waiting for me to say something, so I did with a stutter step. Uh, I, uh, I can pay you. I'm very wealthy. That's more like it. But I'm afraid your currency is inappropriate, he said affably, like the whole cutting me with a blade thing was already forgotten. It's conceptual, the idea of value represented in spots of data in your archaic computer systems. We did away with conceptual currency millennia ago. It's too volatile, too unpredictable, and has a tendency to self-replicate in tune to the vivid imaginations of the grasping spivs that command your financial institutions. It's primitive, to say the least. He took another drag on his cigarette, exhaled the smoke through his nose. Our currency is intangible, practical units of energy. They are all real, immensely valuable in their own right. They are currency, but they are also the fuel we use to fold space, the energy that powers our worlds and the sustenance our beings subsist on. We treat our money with respect. Respect, I repeated. I was annoyed, I don't mind saying, and the annoyance was doing battle with my fear. By creating betting markets based on the imaginary bets of punters from a world of primitive spivs. 
Bruce the alien raised finger and eyebrows simultaneously. But that is the thing, spaceman. Your vivid imaginations are one of the very few things we cannot predict accurately. The human mind, an irreducible mix of reason and unreason, logic and rage, and sexually charged aggression, and inconsistent. Take your neural atypical brain type, spaceman. You're a freak among freaks. Human beings have such spectacular, wild irrationality. You people have a 1 in 50 chance of dying every time you send someone to your Mars colony, but you still have people lining up to travel to that dead red rock. You expose yourself to solar radiation in order to darken your skin, even though 40% of Australians develop skin cancer as a result. You have a 1 in 470 chance of dying by infectious disease, yet spend all of your medical research on penile erection and three-dimensional printing for new faces and breasts. And speaking of which, 1 in 45 heart attacks occur during vigorous sex. Yet you people just won't stop banging each other. In this silver building of yours right now, there are 19 couples having intercourse, 12 vigorously, one involving a swing set, and loud music by some group called ACDC. You are truly one of the strangest, most risk-prone species in the galaxy. It's a wonder you've lasted this long. I put my hand under my wounded arm, relieving some of the pressure on it, unsure of how to react. This day defied a straightforward emotional response. You sit around watching people have sex, I asked. Bruce's eyes narrowed. I study you people the way you spend innumerable hours studying horse data to input into your betting algorithm. Right, I don't ever recall studying a feed of those horses shagging. It's all part of understanding the market. I nodded in the way you nod when you think someone is full of shit. Slowly, with wide open eyes in sarcastic agreement. Right, research. Sure. I leaned back into the soft leather of the sofa. You seem awfully risk-averse for a species so interested in gambling. No one dies gambling, spaceman. None of our race dies at all, really, though some of us choose to fade away. Gambling, using the telepathic betting markets of lower life forms, is one of the very few ways we can experience the rush of risk and randomness. It is very popular. He opened his palms. No, gambling isn't dangerous at all, he said. And everything in his disposition changed, a seamless transition from affable to threatening. Not to my race, anyway. What does that mean? People in your situation, you make a decision to create betting markets with us. Well, you have around a two in three chance of dying. I shifted on the seat. What? How? The way all gamblers die, spaceman. First, I break the knees, and when that doesn't work, the neck. I've been doing this a long time, so listen when I tell you that if you do die, your refusal to believe will kill you about half the time. Not being able to pay kills you the other half. Okay, okay, I said, making calming air pats with my good hand. How much do I owe you? Three energy units. Oh, is that all? Three energy units are roughly equivalent to about two billion dollars in your currency. I was silent. My arm hurt. I needed a coffee, a shower, and 
$2 billion. How long do I have? A week. You're kidding! No. Now, I've got to go. Visits like this cost considerable energy, which I'll be adding to your bill. You need to walk up and down the stairs 500 times today. Completely randomize your steps. We're going to hit the market hard and fast. Your recent predictability in stair walking has left me out of pocket, and my customers placing an increasing number of bets on your most frequent stepping patterns. This will blindside them completely. 500? There were three stories and six sets of stairs in my apartment, all connected. I was relatively lean, but that was from forgetting to eat meals while studying horse racing data rather than exercise. We had a gym on the bottom floor, though I think the weights were still in their plastic wrapping. I said, I'm not sure I can do that. Bruce's black pebbled eyes glittered. You'll do it, spaceman. Because if you don't, I'm not going to go after you. Not at first, anyway. I'm going after Vega. I felt my face heat up. I stood and yelled, Don't you dare! But he was already gone, leaving behind only the smell of cigarettes and burnt copper. Late afternoon, drenched in sweat, wearing the same clothes from the night before. I'd made 283 trips up and down the stairs, My left ankle ached from where I'd twisted it, trying to leap six stairs at once, and the blood was showing through the white bandage on my arm. I lay on the couch, taking a break. Altair! What the hell? I jumped up. I'd been dozing, apparently. I wiped the drool from the corner of my mouth and looked around. Vega was standing near the kitchen bench, hands on hips. What is going on? You haven't even changed from this morning. Her voice held a mix of irritation and disappointment. The latter was always hard for me to hear. I'm sorry, I said, voice bruised by exhaustion. She sniffed the air, then spoke rapid fire. It smells like Jim's socks in here. You look terrible. And whose cigarette butts are those on the floor? I hesitated. There really wasn't any question whether I'd tell her about the alien invader. I said, mine. I was stressed, so I tried smoking. It was inexplicably dumb. She took a deep breath. Why are you so stressed? I, uh, ran into some trouble. I think there's a flaw in the algorithm for the neural network. All my bets turned sour today. I've taken it offline while I search for the problem. Vega nodded, though not at what I was saying. I take it this means you can't leave the apartment, she asked. I only had the energy to nod once. Her expression was flat. What's the rush? Huh? She paced around the floor, eyes on me, stopping in front of the windows. Why not take your time fixing the algorithm? There's no reason it has to be fixed today, is there? I searched my mind for an excuse, but I was just too tired to think of a supplementary lie. Her expression softened. Altair. Vega. You off your medication again? I shook my head. I've been off it for weeks and I've been fine. I don't need to be medicated. You've been off it for weeks, she repeated. The look she gave said it all. Disappointment, sadness, and a healthy dose of, well, obviously, you need to be medicated. Vegas sighed and sat down on the couch next to me. She pointed at my bandage with her eyes. What happened? Oh, I looked down at the arm. 
Just tired, slipped, trying to make a sandwich, you know. Big sandwich? I smiled a weak smile. She put her hand on my leg. Babe, your gambling sessions are getting longer and longer and you're doing more and more of the bets yourself rather than letting your betting machine do them. You're not sleeping or eating and you're refusing to leave the house. You've probably been talking to yourself for half the day, right? There was concern in her eyes. Mine started to gleam. I said, yeah. She was right. Bruce seemed so distant now. Surreal and unbelievable. I shook my head, grimacing at the thought of the day I'd just endured. You're right, she sighed. We're not going through this again, Altier. You're better than this. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a good meal here. Then you're going to take a sleeping pill. In the morning you'll be a new man. We'll go out tomorrow morning, take a nice long walk, and maybe try breakfast at one of those new cafes on the hundredth floor. She was right again. She was always right. I nodded. I showered, washing away the grime and fear. Ravenous, I ate a huge bowl of risotto. Exhausted, I took a pill and fell asleep, Vega's hand in mine. Vega didn't wake up in the morning. I didn't notice at first. I woke up feeling wonderfully rested. Vega's short dark hair was covering her eyes and she seemed deep asleep, head buried in her pillow. I went to the kitchen, got myself a double espresso, walked twenty-one steps to the window and looked out at the Marscape. Then I went upstairs, making sure not to step on every stair, and looked over my new algorithm weightings for weather patterns over the Hong Kong races. Immersed in the maths, I didn't realise until ten o'clock that Vega hadn't awoken. She was never late for work. I went back downstairs and found her exactly as I'd left her, head buried in the pillow. My chest tightened. Vega? No response. I walked around to her side of the bed, put a hand on her shoulder and said louder this time, Vega? She didn't stir. I shook her, saying her name louder and louder. Her body was limp and cold under my hand. I put the tips of my fingers to her neck. At first I couldn't feel a thing there, but fluttering, weak, there was a pulse. I yelled at the house to get a medical team to the apartment. They turned up five minutes later and I was frantic, yabbering at them as we went down the stairs and getting in their way as they took Vega's vitals. The female paramedic unfilled a flexi-screen at the edge of the bed and studied the green glowing icons scrolling down the screen. I asked her what was wrong. She looked up at her partner and then me. I don't know, it looks... She trailed off. It looks like what? Like a coma? She was fine last night, I said, anger creeping into my voice. Just fine. How is that possible? Her professional pattern reasserted itself. I don't know, sir. We're going to take her to the emergency room now. Yeah, yes, yes, good. Does she take drugs, she asked, as they shifted her onto a silver gurney that seemed to float in the air at the end of the bed. I shook my head. No. No, never. Is she on any medications? None. Nothing. Positive? Positive. Now stop asking stupid questions and get her to the hospital. Her gaze was flat in response. Right away, sir. I followed them as they guided the stretcher up the stairs. 
As I stepped onto the landing near the front door, I caught something at the periphery of my vision. I turned, and there, down a short hallway from the entryway, was Bruce. He was standing out in the open in my office, mouth smiling, eyes cold. The paramedics didn't seem to notice him. The woman looked at me. Coming, sir? I glanced back at Bruce. He shook his head slowly, still smiling. I rubbed my forehead and put my hand on Vega's chest. Her face was pale, covered in a thin sheen of sweat. The paramedics had stuck a small round device on her forehead. Little green lights blinked on and off around its circumference. Tears welled in my eyes. I cleared my throat and said, In a minute. In a minute. The paramedics looked at each other. The woman said to me, We'll put her in the emergency ward on the second floor. They didn't wait any longer. The door closed. I stood clenching and unclenching my fists. In my mind I repeated like a mantra, Black box, black box, black box, black box. I ducked into the laundry that sat between the front door and my office. Black box, black box, black box, black box. Then walked back to where Bruce was waiting. Black box, black box, black box, black box. Looking perplexed. I walked right up to him. Black box, black box, black box, black box. And shoved the screwdriver I was hiding behind my back into his stomach. Bruce grunted, eyes wide with surprise, and staggered back. I said, I remember pretty much everything I've ever read. Bruce, it's one of the quirks of my atypical brain. He was trying to pull the screwdriver out of his stomach, his white shirt a spreading stain of fresh blood. I continued, Four years ago I read a story about mind control, a speculative piece but in a scientific journal. Bruce plonked down on the hard floor in the centre of the room. It discussed new experiments, military experiments actually, on thought patterns and mind control. The thing they proved was this. It's really, really easy to disrupt thought patterns. You just need to repeat the same phrase over and over and over. Bruce was looking down at his stomach, his blood-slicked hands unable to gain purchase on the screwdriver's handle. I circled him slowly. This is the problem you face when you mess with a crazy person, Bruce. They're crazy. I have this problem, you see. It makes it difficult for me to feel empathy. And that's just with human beings. Imagine how I feel about an alien gangster debt collector. I stopped in front of him, looking down. Who hurts my wife? His fumbling faded. The pool of blood Bruce sat in was large now, expanding. He looked up at me one last time, made to say something, then collapsed on the floor. His glazed eyes pointed up at the ceiling. I stayed there, standing over the body. They didn't call me Spaceman because I immolated the rocket. I had that name before the rocket incident ever happened. They called me Spaceman because I was weird. Borderline Asperger's, they said. I either never spoke at all in class or spoke endlessly in answer to a particular question until the other kids started laughing and the teacher sent me from the room. I couldn't look people in the eye, catch a ball, or understand the humour in fart jokes. One day a kid was teasing me, the same as he did every other day. I was much younger, smaller than the other kids, 
so picking on me, calling me a retard, sticking me in the dumpster was particularly easy. I just endured it. But this one day I snapped and beat him bloody. I was expelled, and that was that. The incident was yet another reason why I never understood the world. A bully can ply his trade for years, breaking down his peers psychologically and physically, turning the years of adolescence into a long, drawn-out form of torture that some kids take a lifetime to get over. But you break that bully's jaw with a cricket bat, and you're the bad guy. People and their arbitrary rules remained a mystery to me. But maths, well, this was effable. It was the only thing that gave me solace, and I retreated into it whenever I could. Numbers were pure and clean and ordered, and if you worked long enough, they'd divulge their secrets to you. I wasn't just good at maths, either. I was a prodigy. My father used to tell, well, anyone who'd listen, about the time when I was two years old at family Christmas, explaining arithmetic to my older cousin, who was six. I'd learned it watching Sesame Street. At nine years old, I was the second youngest participant in the history of the International Mathematical Olympiad. At 15, I received my Master's in Pure Mathematics at Sydney University, and at 20, I received my PhD at the University of the People's Californian Republic. At 22, I was appointed full professor at the Mathematical Sciences Institute in Australia, and at 23 I received the Young Australian of the Year Award for my breakthroughs in harmonic analysis and analytic number theory. And at 24 you discovered horse racing. I jumped, literally. Behind me, standing in the doorway, was Bruce, smiling a rotten doe smile at me. I glanced back. His other body was still there. Bruce put a cigarette in his mouth and lit it. He inhaled deep, exhaled through his nose and held the smoke up between index and middle finger. Gotta say, best thing about being here is these nicotine sticks. Tasty. He walked around the room, looking over my office. It was sparsely decorated, three large tie screens for watching the races, and an elegant silver neural cap sitting on a small black stand enabling me to watch the same races inside my head if I wanted. A battered brown leather couch I could nap on while the betting system was working something over, and the system itself, a shiny black box with its soul-blinking red light. Bruce glanced over all this as he spoke. At twenty-four you discovered horse racing, that beautiful contest, the perfect mathematical problem. So many variables, so many unknowns, the condition of the track, the weather, the horse's breeding and psychology, the pace of the race, the jockey, their temperament, family situation, what they had for breakfast, the trainer, the level of corruption at each track, and on and on and on. So many variables, so many unknowns, but still a problem that you believed you could divine an answer for, like you were going to... Solve the horse-racing equivalent of Fermat's last theorem. He stopped at the black betting box, looking down at it. You could have spent a lifetime at the track if you'd been allowed, drinking free tea from an urn, hitching up the only pair of pants you owned, betting your last twenty dollars on a ruffie in the last race of the day. Bruce turned and looked at me. The best days of your life, right? 
I nodded slowly. Until I met Vega. Until you met Vega, years later. No longer homeless, doing pretty well for yourself. Wealthy, even. But still a degenerate, still down at the track, day in, day out. All alone, abandoned by your family. But she convinced you to build your system and said you were an analogue man in a nanotech world. She was right, wasn't she? Why do you know so much about me? Simple. You're my prized stallion, spaceman. I know everything about you. I study you the same way as you study your horses. Bruce walked over to his other body, lying on the ground. He nodded at it admiringly. This is what I'm talking about. Glorious irrationality. Like you can take on an advanced alien civilization with a screwdriver. We just never know what you people are going to do next. But that blood, I pointed, hand shaking at the crimson pool on the floor. It's real. I killed you. You can't kill me. I'm a projection. I'm not even here. But you're smoking a real cigarette. You can pick things up and move them around. You wrapped my arm in a bandage. Bruce smiled, shaking his head. (laughs) You people really are primitive. He moved over to me and put his hand on my shoulder. I looked down at it numb. He said, Now, spaceman, uh, we need to make some money. Because I don't know if your wife's going to make it through another day. Three hours later, I was trudging up the stairs, legs shaking with exhaustion. The hospital had been trying to contact me since the paramedics had left. I told them to tell me if Vega's condition changed. The woman at the other end of the line said I needed to fill out some forms about my wife's medical history. I'd cut the connection. I plumped down on the top step, arms on knees, my shirt clinging to the sweat on my back. I rested my head against the bars of the railing, looking down the blocked spiral of stairs descending to the hard floor down below. I bit down on the sob rising in my chest and closed my eyes, pressing my forehead hard against the bars like I was trying to punish my sadness. After a time, the feeling passed. I opened my eyes again, staring downwards. Each flight of stairs was set into one of four walls as it descended, forming a square when looked at from above. The setup was slightly angled, such that the balustrade on the top floor sat directly over the bottom step on the last flight, three floors below. I sat up straight. I knew what to do. I stomped around my office, yelling for Bruce to come down. A minute later he was there, leaning against the doorframe, Fedora shading his eyes, filling the room with the scent of burnt copper. Yes, spaceman. I walked up to him, breathing quickly with exhaustion and excitement. You're on the book for the stairs, right? Right. So what happens when I choose a combination that hasn't been picked? Won't happen. Every option is covered. Let's pretend it did. The prize pool goes to the house? Bruce shrugged. Sure. Is the pool bigger than my debts? Easily. I told him my plan. He pushed the fedora up high on his forehead with one finger and looked me in the eye. Are you sure? I'm sure. 
He smiled that cold smile, black pebble eyes glittering, and put his hand on my shoulder. I looked down over the balustrade. I'm not scared of heights as such. It's not a particular phobia of mine. But still, everyone is afraid of heights. I read somewhere that human beings have only two fears they're born with as part of their natural condition. Fire and falling. I consoled myself that the stairwell wasn't ablaze and swung my legs over the railing, butt cheeks on the balustrade. I said, House, call the hospital. Have them send paramedics. Yes, sir. What is the nature of the medical emergency? I've had a serious fall. Yes, sir. I didn't hesitate. I jumped, aiming to hit any or all of the last three steps. Hit them, I did. It would have been nice if this faded to black, skipped a hospital scene. And it did eventually, but not before I lay on the forward floor, mouth open in silent scream as I looked at the bones sticking out of my legs, trying and failing to staunch the blood spurting out of the wounds, numb hands wet with blood. Not before I threw up from pain, making gagging noises like a sick animal, but yeah, uh, after all that, it faded to black. White walls, white sheets, and Vega's smile smiling down at me. She sat on the edge of the bed, holding my hand. Altair. I squeezed her hand back. My mouth was dry, my head clearer than you'd expect, given the situation. Vega. You're awake. So are you. Hmm... I woke up fully recovered just in time to hear you'd been taken to emergency. She tilted her head at me. I wondered what it was going to take you to get out of the apartment. I smiled. Maybe next time I'll settle for a dinner date. Less messy. She smiled back, but the concern in her eyes was clear. Yeah, I think we're going to have to talk about that. We were silent for a few moments. Whatever drugs they'd given me were sublime. I could feel nothing from the waist down. I said, Did they figure out what was wrong with you? She raised an eyebrow. They're idiots. I shifted, pulling myself higher up on the pillow. What did they say? They said I overdosed on sleeping pills. I felt tightness in my chest. What? It's bullshit, I know. I rubbed my head. I'd poured her the glass of water she'd drunk just before going to bed that night. I scratched at the thin scar the carving knife had made on the inside of my arm. Vega was saying something. I whispered, What? She put a cool hand on my forehead. You with me? I said, What happened? I cleared my throat. Sorry? Uh, what happened with what? She raised an eyebrow, falling off the stairs. I took a deep breath and took her hand in mine. Oh, nothing, just, um, clumsy, I guess. Clumsy, she repeated. I lay there in distracted silence, trying to find the line of logic in the stream of events. I thought maybe you'd been drinking, celebrating your big win. Huh? She tilted her head at me. They told me the drugs you're on wouldn't affect your mental clarity. More bullshit by the look of it. 
She got her hand on my chest, making sure she had all my attention. I got a notification from the bank last night. Our apartment has been paid off in full. I lay there in silence, mind racing, while Vega looked at me expectant. I gave her a weak smile and she smiled back strong. The lie that followed was as limp as my smile. Maybe I did have a couple of drinks. I was, um, going to surprise you. The truth, as always, was mine alone to bear. Vega was about to say something when a nurse entered the room without knocking. Blue smock, harried expression. He nodded at Vega and said to me, Let's talk about your medication. Vega stroked my hair and kissed me on the forehead, then excused herself so she could go get a coffee. The nurse put down a small plastic tray that had little square boxes set into it, each with one red pill, blue pill and green and white pill. He indicated them with his hand. We've got a few things here to get your body and mind right. My mind? He sighed, nodding at the doorway Vega had just exited through. Talk to your wife. It's just starting you up on your old medication again, that's all. There's also some nanomeds in here to speed up blood production and help your bones knit. You'll be out of here in a day or two. He put a small plastic cup of water next to the tray and then plucked up a yellow and white pill sitting separate from the others. Take this now, then three of each of these pills for the next six days. In a week, you'll need to come back to the hospital for reassessment. I stared at the tray. There were six rows, three pills in each row, plus the one in the nurse's hand. Nineteen pills. Sir? I looked up. Sure, yes, I understand, thank you. He raised an eyebrow. Now don't miss any, you're going to need all of them for your recovery. No problem, I said, waving him away. The nurse shrugged and departed, looking down at his glowing flexi-screen and presumably his next patient. After he left, I looked back at the row of pills. Nineteen. Obviously, I wasn't going to get better taking a prime number of pills. If nothing else, this was clear. I took three of the pills and shoved them under the mattress. Sixteen remained. I could work with sixteen. I swallowed the yellow and white pill and settled back into my pillow. I smiled as I thought about Vega, safe, and returning with her to our apartment together. I thought about standing at the windows, drinking my coffee, and watching my wife's passion transform the very earth on which the city stood. But more than anything, I thought about the third race at Mooney Valley. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. T.R. Napa. Big thank you there, sir. And Graham, what can I say? A big thank you. Everyone, you know, podcasters, what can I say? You know, it's one of the leading fantasy podcasts out there. Do you know what I mean? Along with Farfetch Fables. You know what I mean? Along with that. Did anyone as well, just before I go, I put out a, a video for, you know, Tales to Terrify won that Parsec Award. Well, I got my actual physical award. So pop over to my YouTube channel. And you can see it's kind of... Because I didn't know if I was actually... The, the parcel that I'd missed, the house that I had to go and collect, it was the, the award. So go and have a look at that. So that is all in today's show. I hope you have enjoyed it. Listen, support if you can. You know what I mean? It's Patreon, any other way. That would certainly help, woman. Please want to kind of keep bringing these shows, especially like Translation Month and, you know, like in the stories. We, we we need some support. Thank you so much. Until next time, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Stories. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of One. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, 
www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.